welcome to Librarians Allowed, an independent podcast presented by the Academic and Special Libraries section of the Library Association of Ireland. I'm your host, Laura rooney Ferris. So we've taken the Librarians Allowed show on the road for this episode with two interviews that we recorded while we were at the Internet Librarian International Conference um, in London last week. We were presenting on Librarians Allowed. So I talk first to Andy Tattersall. Andy is an information specialist at SHAR, which is the School of Health and Related Research at the University of Sheffield. So his work at SHAR and as the chair of SILIP's Multimedia and Information Technology Committee involves the blending of technology, information resources and digital academia. So we caught up after one of his three ILI talks um, and we took on open research, scholarly communication, social media, science reporting and we generally just set the world to rights. So I'm here with Andy Tattersall at the Internet Librarian. He's fresh off not one, not two, but three talks. Uh, Andy, thank you for joining me here on Librarians Allowed on tour. Um, you were talking in the session on broadcasting libraries uh, along with Librarians Allowed. And I'm very interested to hear how an old an ex-DJ <laughs> got into the world of libraries. How, how did those things come together? Um, pretty much by mistake, really. I, I was a journalist... Mm-hmm. and I worked for the Press Association and I used to commute every day and they decided to relocate and I didn't want to relocate so I suddenly needed a new job and a job came up at the University of Sheffield doing their interlibrary loans mm. which is something I didn't really know anything about. Did you know anything about libraries or librarians <laughs> other um, than weird I, I, people who like books? <laughs> I did and I, I'd imagine a large percentage of that was stereotypical you know mm-hmm. shush and Michelle books and things mm-hmm. uh, and I went into working in an academic library so that was a real culture shock for me and um, my library had um, it's got a guy called uh, Dr Andrew Booth and he does evidence-based librarianship and health li- library work and within a month of being there I was part organizing facilitating this conference on evidence-based librarianship it was like I'd landed on Mars. Mm-hmm. It really was a very, very strange concept and all these library people around. And I, I felt it was a complete change from working in journalism, very fast-paced, and mm-hmm. library work is very fast-paced, but, but it was a different kind of area. And um, I've just naturally got more and more interest in this, went and completed an MSc in, in information management, and mm-hmm. for the last 10 or so years of being an information specialist doing something very different. So um, it wasn't anything I ever planned, but... That's that's what everyone says. Yeah. Nobody sets out to be a librarian. No, but I've I've always had, uh, since the age of eleven, a record collection, and mm. I've always kept my record collection relatively filed. It's become a bit unruly in recent years, so obviously there's a librarian in there somewhere. Yeah. Even though I'd, I've never regarded myself as a librarian, I've never actually thought. I've always felt like I'm someone who skates around. The st- I, I I appreciate librarians. Mm. I think they're essential to to modern society. And I think, um, you know, that there's some incredible people working in the industry. But I've always felt like I was, I don't know, kind of uh, a go-between yeah. sort of thing. Your job sounds very interesting because it sounds like, um, and even hearing that you have a journalistic background as well, it 
it sounds like it works quite well with that intersection yes. that we're at now yes. of kind of content management in all of its different formats, research and kind of managing information and the dissemination and the the manipulation and kind of yes, it is batching it, of information and you know different then working with different um, tools, so they, working they, they with work, multimedia yeah. tools. They do. They work really well together. I, I feel really blessed that I've got those two backgrounds because it, it makes me highly kind of critical and I appraise things and I, but I also want to seek information and it's given me a relatively natural set of communication skills so I'm mm. very good at, oh I like to think I'm very good but I, 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 it's quite natural for me to communicate things so if I write a blog post um, it'll take me an hour and mm. people quite often can't figure out why I can do that but I think it's because I've taken that journalistic angle and I, I, I have a bit of an imposter syndrome working in academia I, I get a little bit uneasy with academics who overcomplicate things and mm. I like things not to be dumbed down I think there's a difference between dumbing down and communicating properly and, and yeah. um, succinctly so uh, I think those kind of skills have come quite nicely together yeah exactly particularly in sort of the area that you work in in, in health and, and health research yes. because yes there's a need for very detailed very methodical very systematic research but there's also a, a really strong need to communicate that and yes the best way to communicate that is to do it in as many and as easily understandable formats as possible yes um, so you were talking yesterday about in one of one of your three one of your <laughs> three talks only three talks here at Central Four next, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> uh, about uh, using video and kind of bite yes. little uh, kind of bite-sized video explainer kind of tutorials which I really liked the idea of just very very quick and simple um, and kind of going against yeah. maybe some of what librarians do which is overcomplicating and just getting on with it getting it done yes I, I, and I, I appreciate I'm very lucky that I, I literally work as a, a lone wolf mm-hmm. in my role I do collaborate I love collaborating but I don't have to do things by decision by committee so I mm-hmm. have an idea and then I try and find the time or whatever or the resources to do it so I quite often sit on groups and committees and do get a bit irked when we overthink things. There's an anxiety to get things right. And I think that if you work in research, the very idea is, is that you're doing stuff because you don't know the answer. So invariably yeah. you will not always find the answer. You might get nearer to it. So I, I try and apply those kind of ideas to it. So a lot of the stuff I do isn't polished, isn't perfect, isn't finished. Mm-hmm. But I've done it and I've seen people work on projects and get very, very anxious about them and very hung up about them mm. and not fit, not reveal them or finish them in the end. And that just seems a, a waste of effort and time. So, yeah. so mine is to try and at least just do baby steps. So I do little things to just engage and then we can have a wider dialogue further down the line rather than me making these big epic things that no one will use or watch and then getting very kind of fed up about it so I don't get that inertia mm. I'm very realistic about what I set out to do really yeah get in there and get, get it done in there. don't get stuck in the paralysis of analysis no and that's yeah a great way of putting it that's, I've never heard of that that's brilliant yeah. and, <laughs> love uh, that phrase because <laughs> I've, I've seen yeah. it so often <laughs> and I think that working in health um, we have um, a topic which affects everybody mm. and affects us all globally yeah. and it's a very emotive topic it's something that we can communicate it's something that people are interested in because the research invariably involves human stories 
So what we do, I work with lots of colleagues who say, oh, no one will be interested in my work. No one, and it's the world. There's a story there. There's yeah. an underlying story, whether it's mental health or obesity or pollution. These are things that we care about uh, and people do want to know. And you find that those who do want to engage and get out there and communicate, it, there's a, there is an audience because everybody's interested about that their own health mm. uh, and the health of their children and their parents. So... Um, we're in a natural position, but the faculty I'm in, because of the nature of patient data and, and such like, mm. it's understandable there is reservations that come with it as yeah. well. So I understand that as well. It, there's a kind of a trade-off that we have to be careful of. Mm. You have quite an interesting role. Do you want to go into a little bit more detail on exactly what you work in, in Shar? I work, yeah, so I work in the School of Health and Related Research. I'm part of a team of around 12 information specialists. So we've, we're relatively unique. Mm. We're very, very established. The majority of the colleagues are career professionals of over a decade. Um, some research, some teach. I sit very, very uniquely away from the team, uh, and I, I, I kind of, I, I my, part of my role is to horizon scan. So mm-hmm. I, I look at opportunities. So one of the things I did was that um, I got the first MOOCs going in the University of Sheffield in 2012. Mm. I was on Twitter. I was reading a lot about MOOCs. I was able to go to my director of learning and teaching, who, who at the time, the person was there, had a good relationship with me. I've got a good relationship with the current one as well at the moment. And I was able to influence so that MOOCs were going to be a real mm. big, impactful thing in universities. So we got some money aside. We were able to build a team, and we delivered the first three MOOCs in the university. I, and I got a, Senate, a teaching Senate award. Uh, as a result of that mm-hmm. so that's one thing I do but another thing is I'm interested in things like altmetrics so the research mm-hmm. side so I published a book on that last year edited yeah. with guest authors um, so I do a lot of stuff around my primary driving thing is the opening up of science yeah. and what we do that's the primary driving thing very topical thing. now with open access week yes. coming up next week so, so yeah, that's what's the your thing. advice for um, other librarians other people working to to try and open up the research process i think it's trying to keep it simple i think there's an awful lot of things out there that researchers can do Mm. and that's the thing it's bewildering to them so i think it's working with researchers and saying okay so here's some simple things to do one get an orchid id Mm. two just check that your google scholar profile sorted because these are jobs that take five minutes um then show them the benefits of making their research open access, that it's, it's globally accessed if you've got a repository, mm-hmm. uh, get the data. You know, I show the data to my uh, colleagues to see that they can see how many downloads they've had. And they, they, they realise this is extra stuff on mm-hmm. top of the citations. Then the day, citations, they're, they're very important to, to, to our work, but these other things here, they, they, they can be quite often... a, a, a a, a different kind of impact that if we know that your research has been downloaded 500 times in, in Africa mm. where they couldn't get it because it was beyond a firewall then they're getting access to your research that could change lives that could save lives very mm. simple things uh, and thinking also about your data set as a separate entity that it's something that's citable yeah. that can be shared that can be repurposed and and telling the researchers it's not just about you putting your things out there for free it's the fact that you've got stuff that you can also take and repurpose Mm. it's a give and take it's a pay it forward kind of situation that that the current journal model is still very broken Mm. and i think there's a lot that researchers can do and if they look at what's happening in germany with 
German academics yeah. and elsewhere, there's a groundswell movement starting to happen. And it, it may die down, it may simmer, but I think it can only have one eventuality in the end, that, mm. that opening up knowledge is opening up for the good of, good of the world. Yeah. And I think that most researchers go into research because they are driven by making change. They are driven by finding new things out. They're driven by good reasons. And there's plenty of good reasons out there by doing the opening up of research. So I think for librarians and information people, communicating that mm. message makes people think. Because I think academics sign away the rights to their work. They don't yeah. often realise. They, they know they've signed something, but they still think it's their work. I mean, it's the university's work who owns it. But but they, they, they just don't realise the kind of the system that they're supporting and that there's a different way, really. And mm. getting them to realise that companies like Elsevier make a 40% profit margin, which is a oh, premium. their intellectual yeah. product. Yeah, so I think that it's time to kind of... Uh, yeah, a phrase that we've heard so much in the UK, unfortunately, for the last year is gain back control. But I think this is an opportunity mm. for academics to gain it back. It's not going to happen overnight. But um, there are people out doing these things. And I think library information people need to look at what's happening, get involved on social media, pick up this evidence and take it back to groups and committees and show that there, there are things happening, that you're getting editorial boards resigning, you're getting journal, uh, mm. academics refusing to write for, for certain publications now. And, and I think we have to we have to do that because this, mm. this system is not... It's not working. Yeah, until um, somebody pushes back against it, yeah. it's not going to. No. It's not going to change, and those steps are, are getting there. It'll be hard to put that back in the yes. battle, even if it does calm down a little bit. It'll be hard to put that back Absol- in again. Absolutely, I think the genie will soon be out of the bottle. Mm. Um, at the moment, it's 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 it's, pro- it's problem. It's a bit of the elephant in the room. I think a lot of academics are aware of this. Mm. They're not blind to it, but but also because if the system is based around your citations, you're getting the funding mm. and publishing in high esteemed journals. My department, you know, very much is driven by publishing in, in high impact journals. Yeah. And we're kind of maintaining the status quo, so I can understand why it's very hard for academics to yeah, do that. Yeah, it's very hard to break that cycle. It is hard. And, and there was, you know, a year or two ago, uh, some very high esteemed academics received a, a Nobel Peace Prize and said they were no longer going to publish in the likes of Cell and Nature yeah. and Science. And it's like, that's great that they're making the move, but their career is kind of set. They're, they're, the stakes aren't as high. Yeah, for it's like Sting saying, to save the Amazon, you need to stop flying in a plane. Says yeah. the man who built a career flying around the world in a plane. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to be very... We, you know, with people like Jamie Oliver, who will go around telling kind of poor families how they should eat better which mm. is perfectly makes sense and it's perfectly right but quite often the message comes from the wrong person yeah, it uh, comes across as being patronizing yes yeah. and i think we've got to be wary of that so but i think there's a i'm, I'm optimistic mm. for the kind of the future you know try i think it's try and do these things without looking like you're just too too much of a trouble causer because publishers do bring a lot of value there's a lot of value yeah. in that system um, but I, I feel like um, they've been allowed to kind of run away re- relatively unregulated. Yeah, it so need to be more of a, a partnership situation now. Ab- Maybe work ab- at a different type of relationship. Absolutely. Where they cede all, we cede all control to them. Yes, absolutely, yeah. So I think, you know, there's, there's, there's a long way to go. I'll be retired hmm. before we really see things properly. But 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 I think it's um, there's a lot of opportunities and possibilities and there's a lot of things that academics can do just get out and engage and communicate and it doesn't have to be a massive 
impact, negative impact on your workload. This is mm. the idea that people think it's going to stop you from getting it's what you get done. the question people always ask is that thing of, like, how much time is that going to take? Yeah. Is it going to be extra? It's about embedding it into what you do, not seeing absolutely. it as an extra thing. Absolutely. And I think it's the, it's the reality that once you get into that kind of organic flow of doing it, mm. it does... It, it does have an awful lot of benefits you know things like public engagement which you know academics expected more to do more about impact making impact and there's things that you can do to influence policy to influence government to influence you know kind of charities and funders Mm. but you're not going to do that if you do not have any presence outside of your four walls Mm. so i think people have got to get out of there it's that kind of thing where we teach students to do group work and to do presentation skills and to do science communication but we have a whole kind of group of academics who are not doing that, and it feels a mm. little bit kind of hypocritical. Yeah. Um, so it, it would be good to see more of that because, you know, you speak to any academics and people in my department, people in my faculty who do this, and they absolutely see it as part of their job. They see it as a really beneficial way, mm. especially if we're talking about things like fertility or alcohol pricing. They're very kind of... Um, the very emotive and controversial mm. terms that, 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 that people discuss. But as I say to the academics, if you don't get out and discuss your work, there will be people out there yeah. discussing that it. Someone jumps into that vacuum and yeah. generally it's misinformation. Yeah, and you, 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 you've just got to decide whether you're involved or not. Mm. And you don't have to be involved in every communication because some of these things can have you know, tens of hundreds of, of, of conversations and you haven't got the time to do that. But there's certain things you can do to try and negate it. And I think working with the media is a very, very useful way. But it's also remembering that you should be in control of that conversation because you're the one with the knowledge. You know, don't let them soundbite you. Don't let them misreport you. Don't let them publish things where they don't link to your work. Mm. You know, you make sure that you control and, and, and... because it's in their benefit. They need the news stories. Yeah, and, if you're and research- not that maybe the context goes with it. Yes, and, and, the, the, and the likes of such as the Daily Mail, who are renowned for misreporting statistics mm. and data and information like that, they're, they're, they're renowned for, for doing this. And they know what they're doing. They're, they're not daft. Mm. They're doing it to get an angle on things, you know, kind of. Uh, and I think it's important that researchers make it be known that that is not, right because if you were miscited in a piece of research you wouldn't be happy yeah now that research might get read by 10 people it may have a massive impact but it might it might be but something in the press that can really really cause a lot of damage and a lot of anxiety mm. and where you see say a front page story where it will say um, taking folic acid um, doubles your risk of getting ovarian cancer for most people, they don't understand statistics, so they yeah, just work so on the. Yeah, they're not going to read beyond the head. Yeah, so they just work on the premise that, well, um, that means now that uh, if, say, me and my sister, one of us is going to get ovarian cancer, it doesn't yeah. mean that. It just means that. And yeah, it's, the headline it is could, based on yeah. um, one tiny sentence yes. in an article that actually is taken completely out of context. And that becomes the head, that becomes the headline, and mm-hmm. we have things like behind the headlines, which works on that. And again, as the next journalist, you know, I'd like to think within kind of the journalism world and like the tech world with with hacking there's white hats and there's black hats there's Mm. journalists who aren't particularly nice who have got agendas and then there are those who really want to publish the right the proper Mm. and they operate on both sides left left wing and right wing and in the center but they exist but for me it's it's important the information is correct and accurate out there and in Mm. the day in the 
in the climate we have with the likes of Donald Trump, etc., it's become increasingly so. Um, you know, and you, I, I can't imagine what it's like to be a climate change scientist in the US, but you must feel very, yeah. very kind frustrating. of frustrating <laughs> at the moment. Yeah. So, so, so by getting out there and communicating, uh, we can we can do a lot. To try and at least address the equilibrium, because if we don't, we've seen what's happening. That the louder, opinionated voices are coming through people who have no evidence people like katie hopkins who's brought out to talk on any kind of topic from depression to obesity yeah. of which she's not an expert on either and she, i don't think she ever stops and goes am i an expert in this how much you know how much real yeah. knowledge do i have whereas one of the problems i think librarians sometimes have or information specialists sometimes have is kind of stopping and going oh i know a little bit yeah. about this but i don't really know enough am i enough of an authority it's okay to not yeah. be yes. the uh, 100% the authority on something. Yeah. Just know, be, be good and solid in the factual information that you have, and that's probably I, enough. I think the library information community are good at that, and they're good at the networking, and they're good at the idea of, well, I don't know, but they know, mm. so I'll go to them. They they will ask. If 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 like you know if librarians, I'd, I'd like to see what librarians were like back at school, but I'd imagine they're the kids mm. who put the hand up to ask the questions because they want to yeah. know more, and they want to fill in the knowledge gaps. So I, I, I think that they are increasingly important when we have these voices out there that are causing tremendous amounts of damage. You know, on occasions, yes, certain issues are raised that we need to discuss, but I think it's their agenda underneath which makes it very, yeah. very frightening. There are certain issues that, that Katie Hopkins touches on and, and, and Donald Trump, and I'm not, I'm not defending him for a second, that are kind of the elephant in the room in society and things mm. like that. But it's very clear they have agendas, and yeah. it's very clear that they are very divisive in these agendas. And they have a lot of people who follow them who are not prepared to assess and, and think for themselves. And that's the great thing about, um, you know, further education and higher education. You're hopefully taught to kind of think for yourself and to appraise things and to question things. Yeah, it should things. be the ultimate aim yeah. of higher education. Absolutely. And it's one of the greatest gifts that I felt I was taught, you know, with my, my degrees that uh, try not to take things on face value mm. because I see it a lot on social media, I see it a lot on, on communications, and I get things wrong. We all get things wrong. Yeah, it's okay to get things wrong. Yeah. It's just like work then from the information, yeah. the, the new information that you do have. Absolutely. It's okay to revise things. Yes, <laughs> Come absolutely. back and say we were previously, yeah. we didn't have all the information we do now, or we yeah. have a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. That's how learning goes. <laughs> yes, yeah. I think learning is a wonderful, it's a wonderful thing to have. It's a wonderful skill to have. And, that the internet is, you know, my Twitter profile says that I'm in a love-hate relationship with the web, and it feels like that <laughs> at times. I, I feel think like, we can all appreciate yeah, that. Yeah. I feel like I hate the internet at times. I, I hate a lot of what Web 2.0 brought mm. us, the fact that actually you could allow some very, very horrible people on there to do some horrible things. And people will say, well, we'll defend democracy. But I think there's certain things, you know, whether it's around child abuse... Or kind of, um, you know, kind of very extreme kind of ideas around, um, you know, kind of uh, as we see with 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 things like ISIS or with the the, the far right, where we're talking about it, very extreme violent thoughts. Mm. There's things like that that make the web a little bit of a not so nice place to yeah, be. Yeah, it becomes harder to be one of the kind of the people out there. Yeah. Kind of promoting uh, web tools. Absolutely. Prom- promoting, it, it, expressing yourself openly yeah. online. Because I think it does have a detrimental effect on us as a mm. society. And 
we're seeing increased numbers of children suffering with anxiety and mental health problems due mm. to various kind of problems, the issues they get. But it's because an awful lot are being exposed to some pretty horrible things that I never was exposed to as a child. Mm. Um, so we, we are seeing that. So I am very conscious, especially as a parent, about this issue. But all the wonderful stuff on the web as well, all the kind of the crowdsourcing, all the kind of initi- initiations to come together, things like in the Arab Spring and, and ideas where mm. people have done stuff with a positive outcome makes me kind of very optimistic that this is a project that we shouldn't let go of yeah. and we shouldn't let the dark side win. We should... Just because there are a few like, lunatic voices in yes. there. Yes. There's lunatic voices in everything and in every, in every new technology there's always been nutters that have gotten hold of it and wrecked it for the yes. rest of us. It doesn't mean they have to Absolutely. take the whole thing over completely. And that's what I say to academics when they are very concerned about um, the internet and they are concerned about the fact that it feels like the Wild West. And I say to them, well... It's, it is very much like real life in that there are communities and you could live in a, in a relatively nice suburban estate and a nice community and you may go into a nice part of your city and it's relatively tame. And that's what the web's like. If your community's mm. like that, you know, it's this kind of echo chamber, but it's, you, you have the nice experiences. But there are the darker sides that you may stumble on via, via social media channel. And that's in the same way that you'll stumble on nasty things in real life. Mm. Someone having a bit of road rage or someone uh, kind of drunk and abusive in the street or, or someone getting mugged. Yeah. That's life, unfortunately. That still exists. So I think you can kind of relatively control it within the web. Um, I think there are, you know, there's things that we can do. I think for researchers, we also have to teach them how to deal with those negative things. Because if you mm. are... A political academic or a feminist, uh, you know, uh, doing research for femi- feminism or anything that is seen as controversial, where you're going to get some thought-like re- comments coming back. Mm. The worst thing we can do is kind of walk away from it and let them win and let yeah. that voice win because the, the, invariably it's unevidenced, it's uneducated. And I think the important thing is, as a community, is to say not acceptable. And you know, thankfully, you know, the government in 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 the UK is doing more to deal with online kind of crimes and abuse like this because I Mm. think we have to. We can't let these people go around completely unfettered saying what they want to say and doing what they want to do. It's causing absolute misery for some people's lives Mm. and there has to be a recompense for that. I can't walk down the street and call somebody whatever I want and Mm. and follow them home shouting whatever, racial or slurs or anything like that. So I, I think that that's not unacceptable and it shouldn't be acceptable on, on the web. And we we have to as a society, because I think it's become that people kind of feel like, well, I'm on the web, it's fine, I can do yeah, this. Yeah, I think we just, uh, maybe our kind of psychology hasn't caught up yet. You know, our, yes. That, there's a, you know, that, that interesting area of like cyber psychology and uh, the study of how human psychology and yeah. this the, yes. the the birth of the internet it's the idea, we haven't it? quite caught up yet no. the, the access that we have and these new communication tools to be able to kind of understand yeah. what we're doing in in online spaces and how what the repercussions of that are kind of yes understanding it's brought, out, it's brought out some of our worst sides hasn't it the narcissism which yeah. you know I, I think there. <laughs> there's certain elements that I think it's good to kind of blow your own trumpet on the web I think it's good to be proud of what you do and things like that as long as you're not harming anybody you know I, I mm. someone says something nice about me on Twitter I will retweet it it's just very nice I, hopefully my manager sees yeah. that it's, it's, it's a a, kind of, almost like a politeness thing isn't it it is oh it's that's a, very nice. nice I better just yeah. it's like a little thank you to them yeah so it's a kind of a nice a nice, a nice thing but 
but it's getting that balance it's getting that kind of thing from the extremity of where people just think that they can do what they want and they can say what they you know particularly you know certainly women get a particularly horrible time we get a bit of a rough time if we say anything online (laughs) and i think that that it's fine though we're it, it wasn't like it wasn't there no. before we had the internet. <laughs> but it's but it's but it's um it's it's, it's obviously reflects a cultural issue, doesn't yeah, it? Exactly. It's reflecting and the cultural. I think it's just that that particular element and those voices maybe hadn't been heard in quite a long yeah. time because it is you know, it's a bit like with um when people talk about public health campaigns and you know how you kind of have to shame people into like yeah. this is just not acceptable. Yeah. Like if you think about back in the fifties, it was perfectly acceptable to just smoke everywhere and drink everywhere yeah. and just do things that are now considered yeah. to be just unacceptable. Like yeah. if somebody was smoking in a public place, you'd just be looking at them. Mm. It's just not done. Mm. I think we probably need to get to that stage with the internet I think of you're just right, certain yeah. things being just unacceptable. Yes, um, and I, th- we're just I think not, so. We're not there yet. We haven't I th- really grown I think up. So. I mean, I, when I think back to things like when David Beckham was at his height of his fame and, and Victoria Beckham was going to watch him, she was on the Spice Girls, and you, you had groups of grown men shouting I hope your kid gets cancer you kind of think if you were to take them as individuals and sit them down and a lot of them would have been dads they would never have done it it was a tribal mentality mentality, and we see that on the web this almost this kind of way where people wade into one person and I think that we have to kind of remember you know mental health issues are an epidemic across the globe and, 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 Mm. and certainly in the west and that we have to think you know these people may have kind of issues you, you we, we've seen it we've seen people end their lives because of online yeah, bullying because of the piling on of yeah, online and bullying it's, and just it's, exacerbating it's, an existing yeah. problem I think there's a difference between having a bit of fun and I know banter's a bit of a weird bit of a kind of a kind of that yeah, kind of grey area term, it's yeah. a bit of a but I think there's an idea with having a little bit of kind of fun and, and but but it's it's at least picking who you're doing that with and knowing that they're reciprocal yeah. to that kind of bit of but when you when you're doing it to total strangers and you're plowing down on people and belittling and other people jump in it's really i mean you know we we, we try and get children to stop doing this and their children that's harder this is grown adults who are smart and when you have the leader of the free world belittling individuals yeah, it's, it it's does a, open up the it's a worry. for everything to come yes. out, doesn't it? I think the quicker he's pushed out of power or he had his Twitter account taken away from him, the, the, the better for society. Mm. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot of people saying that it's against free speech, but I, you know, I think that one individual is doing a heck of a lot more harm. Yeah, and it's not even been a year yet. <laughs> no. <laughs> Can't get anywhere without talking about the T word. I know, it's a horrible, isn't it? Even, even here, Digital yes. Librarian, we're not safe. <laughs> but it's because we're interested in information, isn't it, in communication. Yeah. And he's obviously interested in it. He just obviously didn't turn up for that and tutorial. And I think it's, it's just, it's something that, particularly just looking at it from a librarian's perspective, we, we're not used to that. Like, we're sort of, we up until fairly recently we're quite naive about thinking yeah. well you just you put the facts together and yeah. you present a strong argument yeah. to someone and you show them where they've gone wrong yeah. and hopefully that'll rectify things yeah. sometimes that just doesn't work some yeah. people are just hell bent on I don't care I've got yeah. my own agenda and I'm going with it yes and I think with someone in this the, the, the two people we've mentioned earlier with their massive Twitter profiles there's a very strong I think narcissistic element there and they're mm. very used to people agreeing with them and I suppose it's like the rock star kind of image that when you get used to being told you're always right and that you're always great, you start to feel that you're yeah, flawless. You kind of so, you know, you press. see it with people like Kanye West and, and people like that, that 
they they do attain some kind of like demigod status in their own mind whatever they say and do is right and I, I, I think that one of the greatest qualities that a human can have is the admission that they were wrong yeah. on certain things and that they, they made a mistake and and that's that's learning as well. Like yeah. that's something we should be encouraging. You know, probably as yeah. maybe as like my brain's even like reminding people that it's all right to be wrong sometimes. And when yeah. you're when you're wrong, you work with the new information. You go back to the board, yeah. You kind of re- yeah. reassess. You put it back together. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I should probably wrap up now and let you get back <laughs> to the the end of Internet Librarian. I think we've solved a few of the world's problems there. So. We've we've I certainly so. made a good start. Like a you know yeah. put a bit of a dent in it. Formed a working group. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks very much for having a chat. Thank you. Thanks. So I also talked to Jan Holmquist. Uh, Jan is Assistant Library Director at the Gildesborg Public Library in Denmark, and he's also a global library advocate extraordinaire. Um, he developed the first 23 Mobile Things programme and was involved in a crowdfunding project um, to buy India a library. So we had a chat in possibly one of the loudest corners of the Olympia that we could find. So sorry about the background noise. Um, we chatted about his route into librarianship and his library philosophy. Okay, so I'm here at the Internet Librarian International Conference in London and I'm here with Jan Holmquist, who I'm sure I've mispronounced your name. Jan, how do you pronounce your name properly? Um, it was uh, pretty close, okay. Jan Holmquist. Okay, yeah. um, so Jan, can you tell me a little bit about your current role and how you got into librarianship? Uh, my current role is that I'm an um, uh, assistant library director at the public library in the southeastern part of Denmark uh, at a muni- municipality called Gulbasund. Uh, uh, and how I first got into uh, libraries, I think it was, uh, uh, I remember I went to see a play called uh, Love Letters, and then uh, I liked the play, and I went to the library and asked if it was uh, possible to get the text, uh, and, uh, and I was amazed that they could actually do that. Uh, so I could only read it at the library, uh, but I was still amazed that they could actually uh, do it. And then a couple of years went by, and I wanted, always wanted to uh, uh, to find some work where I could uh, make a difference to people. And since I'm not very good with blood, I couldn't be a doctor. Yeah. Uh, so I went for. Yeah, that's a prerequisite. Yeah. You have to be okay with blood. <laughs> yes. So I went with uh, librarianship because I was not afraid of books. And, uh, I was yeah. not afraid of information. And uh, yeah. That's the first person who I've talked to who said they they got into libraries through a play. That's a new one to me. Yeah. It's an interesting routine. Um, so where did you uh, where did you make your first steps then into the professional world of librarianship? Um, after I I studied um, I studied librarianship in uh, in Copenhagen, um, but I actually did uh, six months at uh, UCD in Dublin. Oh wow! Uh, yeah. How did that uh, happen? It was on an Erasmus program, mm-hmm. uh, so it was funded uh, uh, by the EU back then, um, and um, and it was uh, 
divided into to, uh, one semester and then another student had the other semester. And then there were students from UCD at the Royal School of Librarianship in uh, Copenhagen. It was named that, it sounds pretty cool, it was named uh, back then. Yeah. And now it's part of the Copenhagen University, so it's a bit, it's, it's a bit different. Mm. So how did you enjoy your experience of UCD in Dublin? Uh, I loved it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I loved were, it a lot. You were studying in the... The School of Information Studies there? Yeah, I did. So, um, but it's a long time ago. It was back in uh, 1999. Okay. So. so a lot of our previous guests have come through the, the School of yeah. Library and Information Studies in UCD. I didn't expect it to come up in this interview. No. <laughs> it's interesting to know. And so how did you, what was your first kind of couple of professional roles then? What, um, what kind of roles did you have when you first started working in libraries? I, w- I started out as a reference specialist at a public library in uh, North Zealand in uh, Denmark, um, uh, in a place called Holde, um, and I was there for four years, and then I have been in different uh, positions at the Kukosund Public Library since 2004. Did uh, you always want to take the route of going into public libraries? Yes, I did. Yeah. Was that conscious choice? Yeah, yeah. It was, Why was uh, that? I think it, again it was uh, that, and and of course that is uh, that is not the truth. But at that time I thought that that was where I could make the hugest difference for for uh, regular people, if you can say it like that. Yeah. Um, since then, I've one of my main scopes and one of the th- things that I think that library matters the most is supporting learning on all levels. Yeah. Uh, so and 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 that is uh, a thing that is done in all kinds of libraries all over the world. Uh, no matter where it is, what uh, technology they have, they all work for the same cause in supporting learning. Um, but in the public library, we, we do it uh, yeah, just from when uh, newborn babies until uh, yeah. until people die. That's <laughs> and true. I think that's, that's fascinating. A, that's the real beauty of a public library. You do see people all the way through the life cycle, all the way through kind of their information need cycle. So it's yes. the one job where you're going to meet them at every point in life. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. Interesting, yeah. So you've stayed in public libraries most of yeah. your career? Yeah, I did. Yeah. All of my career. Yeah. So how did you end up in your, your current role? Can you give me a little bit of background about that? Or what, what a kind of a typical day would be like of what your your work kind of remit is like there? Yes. Um, there's a lot of administration mm-hmm. being an assistant library director and the I do a lot of the stuff that a library director would uh, would do uh, because we had an, a change in the organization. We merged with the citizen services earlier this year, uh, and that meant that a lot of the, the work uh, with managing the library uh, is something that I, I do today. But like I mentioned, it's been uh, different uh, things that I've been doing over the last uh, many years in Kukosun. Uh, so the first thing I did was that I merged the uh, reference department with uh, the uh, normal adult uh, apartment and um, then I had a, a role as um, uh, working with library development for a few years and then I uh, I went into being assistant library director. Wow, so a lot of change in, lot that, of change. in that role. Yeah, yeah, a lot of change. Uh, so, so yeah, I've been the, at the same library for I think uh, 13, 14 years but it's uh, I've done a lot of different stuff there, yeah. uh, and also the the 
the, the part about working with the global uh, librarianship thing that I've mainly done on, in my spare time um, has also been an, an, an opportunity to, to build upon that. Uh, that has been quite fun to do. How did you get involved with the the, kind of the global community of, of library advocates that you're kind of a, a yep. strong member of now? It's uh, it was uh, I think the first really big conference I went to was the EFLA in Gothenburg mm-hmm. some years back, and um, and it, it fascinated me so much that there was uh, I think 3,300 delegates from all over the world. Mm-hmm. And that was where I saw that we were all working for the same cause, no matter if you have a, a mobile library that's driven by a donkey in Africa, you're bringing information and, yeah. and uh, culture, um, literature, literacy uh, to your community. And that is what we're doing in the more high-tech public libraries in, uh, yeah. in, in Europe as well. Yeah, we have, and, we have uh, different tools, maybe different more tools. technologically advanced tools, but yeah, the, the, exactly. the core business is the same. It is, and uh, that fascinated me. So, uh, And I saw the value of this uh, international uh, network. And also because in Denmark, uh, a lot of people uh, look up to Danish public libraries, and, uh, and Danish public libraries are very good. Uh, uh, but, um, but that can mean that Denmark closes uh, itself around uh, okay. Denmark and Scandinavia and what I saw was that there was so much that we could learn from other parts of the world. With, uh, it's interesting because I think uh, the rest of the world see the Scandinavian libraries as being kind of real exemplars of doing some very good work that uh, particularly yes. in Ireland because some of the countries are of comparable sizes. Yeah. So they're a good place to look to see kind of good examples of projects that may work for us too. I, uh, I think it is. I think it's true. But I also think that, that uh, for that to continue to be true, mm-hmm. uh, Danish libraries should also be open to what is happening elsewhere. I'm a big fan of, uh, of what they're doing with the National Library Strategy in, in Scotland. And yeah. a lot of the things that they're doing there is so successful. Um, we opened the Fab Lab earlier on this year, uh, but what they have been doing with makerspaces in mainly the US, but also Australia for years before Denmark got in the in the game, if we were not open to that, um, we, we would not continue to be uh, an inspiration for people elsewhere. So I think that yeah. we can learn just as much as uh, as other people can learn from yeah. Scandinavia. So we could all learn. Yes. a lot from each other. I think that's one of the good things about librarianship and increasingly as it becomes easier to collaborate with people in yeah. different countries. It's a, it's a big boost now to be able to work on a project with someone in, in another country and collaborate with them and learn from their cultural experiences and learn from the things that have worked in their in their libraries. I absolutely agree. Yeah. So you've been involved in quite a few kind of inter- international projects. Yes, uh, I the, have. Uh, yeah, and it's the, been a, lots of fun and it's I agree with it. It's, it's actually more easy than people would imagine. Yeah. And that's the that, that's the good news about it. So it's. Uh, Do you think that's because people tend to come to these projects very willing and yeah, engaged so. and involved? I think so. And that also was something that might be in the librarian DNA about the. Maybe. Uh, yeah, that we. Um, the way we work, uh, the way we, the, the work ethics as well, uh, uh, but but usually it's it's for the same uh, cause again, uh, and uh, so if you're a team of four to five uh, librarians, uh, 
from uh, maybe from the US, from Europe, and from Australia, then your team is always awake, and uh, yeah. and you can really advance a project uh, rather fast, and it's so yeah. fun to do. I thought about that actually, the idea of your team always being awake, like that. It's like a relay system. It like is, when, yeah. when when the US goes to sleep, that Europe yeah. is just waking up, and when Europe is going to sleep, you know, Asia are waking yeah. up. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Good way to work. Um, so you were involved with one of the projects you were talking about in your uh, talk on library advocacy was the Fund a Library, yeah, uh, which was really successful. It was really successful, the Buy India Library project. And, uh, it was uh, the first uh, international project that I was part of. Uh, was together with uh, Ned Potter here from the UK mm-hmm. and um, Justin Hunke and uh, Andromeda Yeltsin from the US. Yeah. Uh, so we. Uh, made a lot of noise on social media uh, back then and made a crowdfunding project uh, before Kickstarter yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and collected uh, enough funds to build a library attached to a school in Mysore, India and uh, and uh, three mobile libraries, uh, donkey-driven mobile libraries in, in Africa. So that was, uh, that, that was a, a huge success and after two weeks we stopped because we didn't want to annoy everyone with the yeah. tweets all their 24 hours around for, for more than two weeks. So had you decided going into that project we're going to just keep it to a very specific period of time yeah. and only promote it within these two weeks? Yes, we, that, that was a decision we made early on. Uh, go in, make a lot of noise and then uh, wrap yeah. it up. Yeah. Hit hard and fast for Hit a short period, isn't it? Yeah. Sure. It's a good idea, but like, with, good that you knew to do that kind of early on in, in crowdfunding. I think people are a bit more aware now of crowdfunding yeah. and that it's you know, what, what it is and how it works and how it doesn't, um, and that that it can if it drags out for too long yeah. become annoying. So yeah, it's a good example of that, a successful way to, to crowdfund. Um, given that you raised more money than you anticipated, it was certainly very successful. Yeah. Um, so what are you working on now? What's the, what's the big project? Um, the, the big project right now is uh, is local in uh, in Kulpasun. Uh, also, since the the job changed a lot uh, this January, and also I'm doing uh, some master studies at uh, the Copenhagen Business School, uh, uh, and I have to write my final thesis there. So that is what's on my plate uh, this so January. That's keeping you pretty busy. That's, that's keeping me pretty busy, but. Uh, I hope to get uh, more time to do uh, more spare time projects, uh, maybe from the fall uh, yeah. next year. And, um, and still, it's also fun that the, the, the 23 mobile things that build upon the original 23 things yeah. that Helen Flowers uh, did, that, that, that kept uh, rolling, the ball kept rolling for so long. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we still sometimes get uh, feedback, even though it's uh, some years since that we updated the original version of it. Uh, I think that's, that's one of those projects that has just grown and grown and yeah, taken, yeah, it taken is, root. Yeah. And we have one in yes. Ireland now as well. And, and it's what, been very successful. Yeah, what we're doing now is that we're making uh, 23 mega things in Kugosum. Uh, and, and I'll try to see if we can kind of get an English version of that one as well. We will prepare the website for an English uh, version of that. But that will not be how to use a, a 3D printer uh, going from A to B, but more what concepts can you do yeah. that are vital uh, uh, and, and interesting to your community, uh, but still has the, the library feel to it, so uh, about information literacy and stuff like that. So um, I'm quite excited about that. We've got some funding from... Uh, 
uh, from the, the, the agency culture in, uh, in Denmark. So it's uh, I guess that you'll hear more about that okay. maybe in a year's time. Right. So we have to watch that space then yeah. and keep keep an eye on your, your tweets to, yes. to hear more on that. Okay, Jan, I'm going to let you go now. Um, thank you very much for chatting with me. So, with all that conference-based chatter, has you all fired up to get your conference groove on? I have good news for you. The call for papers for ASIL 2018 is now live. The conference takes place on March 9th, and the theme for this year is Fail Better. So, we are looking to hear from you if you've got stories of sticking two fingers up to failure and learning by experimentation. So, if you've got a great story of how you clawed back from catastrophe or how you got creative in less than perfect circumstances, we want to hear it. Um, so, go to www.aslibraries.com, have a look at the call for papers, and get your submission in. Come on, what's the worst that can happen? Librarians Allowed is produced and presented by Laura Rooney-Ferris. Music and editing are by Michael Ferris.